And now, The Low Post. Welcome to The Low Post Podcast on a dreary Monday afternoon where my guest appears to be in a much sunnier and happier place than I am. Mr. Tim Bontemps, we're going to go around the Eastern Conference, particularly at the top in the NBA. How are you, sir? Doing well. I'm going to see Cooper Flag play tonight. Uh, number one pick in the 2025 draft with Bobby Marks and then go to the uh, G League Showcase. So I'm down here in Bobby Marks land, otherwise known as Sunny Fort Myers. I'm glad that Duke basketball caught a break after all these years <laughs> of just, you know, just being an also ran hard luck program. No re- NBA representation. You know, every year there's a Duke alum dinner at Vegas Summer League for all the Duke alums who work for teams or work for the mm-hmm. league office, including Adam Silver. And it's it's now gotten so big, and there are so many of them, that like some people don't make the cut. That's how big the Duke Mafia is in the NBA. That they can. So I'm glad that Cooper Flagg went to that institution in Durham. Before we start, I have to start on a sad note here. Okay. And I have to I have to just let out a little sad cacaw. Oh. <laughs> We're gonna talk about the terrible <laughs> bet you made. Okay. Have Good you started idea. picking out restaurants for uh the well it was a hundred dollars, I think, but I it was that the actual correct. bet. Um have you started earmarking items you want to buy with the hundred dollars you're getting from me that who who had a cockeyed optimist view of the Hawks and bet you a hundred bucks that they would be in the top six and then unilaterally made the bet harder by saying, no, top five in these. Currently, the Hawks are 10 and 15, eagerly awaiting the return of Jalen Johnson, who is apparently the keystone to the team. And I'm not even being sarcastic because he was that good and does so much of what they're missing. But come on, 10 and 15. Have you started? Do you have a is is, is, is maybe, you know, someone for your special someone in your life, something for, for her? Like, what do we got? I uh, I, I started counting up money in my saving in my checking account the moment you made the bet and then as you said made it harder on yourself without me even saying anything so uh i have it i have it saved away already why are they so why are they so not good i mean i think part of it is that it's just a mix that doesn't quite fit right like you've got Nyeka Kongo and Clint Capella who are both centers you can't really play them together you've got Dejounte Murray and Trey Young, who are both point guards, and they've gotten a little better with the fit, but it's still kind of an awkward fit. They're both guys that need to have the ball. Jalen Johnson was really one of the emerging players in the league this year, was playing terrifically. Then he gets hurt. They don't really have any replacement for him on the wing. Um, So, I mean, I think it's a combination of a lot of stuff, but I think the biggest thing, Zach, frankly, is if you just look at the league in both conferences, there's just a lot of good teams. And four or five years ago, this group that the Hawks have would probably be fifth or fourth or sixth somewhere in like that in the east but if you look at these teams now in the eastern conference i mean the Cavs were on pace to be seventh as of now that was before they had darius garland donovan and uh evan mobley miss probably the next six to eight weeks both right so like and they clearly have higher end talent than atlanta does so it's just a much more difficult conference than it has been in the past and you know, getting up to fifth, you're probably going to have to win up near 50 games. And, you know, I just don't think Atlanta, even if fully healthy, was a team that was realistically going to be in that kind of a ballpark. 
Yeah, the reason Jalen Johnson is so important to them is not just because of like the juice that he brings in all the areas where they need juice, like size, rebounding, defense, energy, hustle plays. Mm-hmm. It's that I look at their roster. Yeah, their guards are really good. Like I think Trey's been fine after a, a first 10 games where his floater kind of deserted him. Actually, he's been more than fine. He's been very good. I think he's competed a little harder defensively this season than in the past. He's done his job. DeJounte Murray's been kind of amp, but... Then you have their two centers who can't, who are both good, who shouldn't really play together and now are out of necessity. They're even starting together. And then you have Bogdan Bogdanovich, who is maybe the favorite or co-favorite for six man of the year, but they are rightfully hesitant to play him with both of their starting guards because of what it does to their defense and are only doing that in spurts now out of mm. necessity, which is my long way of saying DeAndre Hunter and Sadiq Bey, just, they just either are like this too much of the same guy or just aren't bringing enough of what they need to the table at the wing. And Jalen Johnson was starting over Sadiq Bey and brought all of that stuff that those guys just don't bring. And they're just kind of both kind of just vanilla players. But I don't want to talk about the Hawks because they make me sad. <laughs> you know, I wanted to bring you on because we're going to talk about all the teams that are in your wheelhouse right now. And I'm going to start by a, a little inside baseball. So uh, a couple times a week on NBA Today, we do these post-show YouTube segments, which are kind of like, okay, what do we want to do? Do we want to talk about, like, is there more of a like hot-button Draymond Green thing that we want to get into that we didn't fit into the show? Or is there something that we didn't talk about that all you guys really want to hit? And so Malika asked me on Friday, like, hey, any ideas for the YouTube thing after the show? And I'm looking at the standings, trying to drive. I was like, I don't want to do any more Draymond. We've done enough Draymond. Um, and I said, you know, it's funny. I've been on the show four days in a row, and I don't think the word Boston has been said one time in four days. And at that time, they were 18 and five. They're now 20 and five after vanquishing the Orlando Magic, who were a thorn in their side, thanks to Eddie House, uh, two games in a row over the weekend. They're 20 and five. And then we're going to talk about Philly, 18 and 7, just destroying every bad team in their path. Milwaukee, 19 and 7, actually ahead of Philly in the standings, perceived as kind of a disappointment this year. They're up to plus five as a scoring margin. Um, their their net rating is is kind of normalizing around that same that same range. The Dame Giannis lineups are working are working much better than they were earlier in the season. We'll talk about the numbers there. And here we have this big three. Kind of all this drama and turmoil in the East. It's the same big three that was the big three last year until Miami decided, no, we're actually bigger than the entire big three. Thank you very much for your participation in this conference. I want to start with Boston. And when I brought this up on the YouTube segment, I asked the panel, like, why do we not, why are we not talking about this team? And two things came up. Number one was, well, they've been good for so long that it's, it's kind of like, Eh, like okay you're good again with Tatum and Brown and my response to that was well this this is I think in my opinion is the best team of the Tatum Brown era and more so it's a totally different team with Porzingis and Drew Holiday than it's been stylistically second year of a coach who's kind of figuring out what he wants to do with the team and then Perk added I don't really care about anything they do unless they make the finals and win the championship. And then he went further and brought up like, if they don't do those things at the end of the year, well, we might have to have a conversation about Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum. At which point I looked at the camera and said, 
I would like to apologize to Celtics fans because I brought up this topic out of good faith. I wanted to talk about this team that we're not talking about that's now 20-5 and five and I think is the best team in the league. And now poor Perk has brought up breaking up the Jays. So I want to start with the Celtics. 20-5, and five, sixth in offense, third in defense, second in net rating. And honestly, Tim, I picked them to win the championship before the season. I think you did you as well? I did. Yeah, I thought they were the best team in the league coming into the season. And despite the fact that Philly has passed them in net rating due to just beating the snot out of all the sad sacks in the league over the last two weeks, I have seen nothing that, like, as long as they're healthy, which which applies to pretty much every team, I look at this team, I'm like, I watch them. Every time I watch them, I'm like, man, they are just an absolute machine, a totally complete team that seems to be really connected on defense even executing strategies that are kind of sophisticated and unconventional, totally on a string. Offensively, everyone seems to have settled into the right role. And look, I had a whole monologue when we were supposed to do a podcast and we had technical difficulties about Jalen Brown um, after that disastrous loss in Charlotte where I was just like, he, he kind of seems like he's forcing it. I don't like his shot selection. And since that game... I think he's played with exactly the right sort of calibration of passing, shooting, transition, playmaking, when to force it, when not to. And before I go to you, the number that sort of epitomizes that to me is, you know, going into that game, the Tatum on-court, off-court splits were a problem. Since that game, the Celtics are plus 19 per 100 possessions with Tatum on the bench. And all of that is Brown. A lot of that is Brown plus Porzingis two-man game. I don't know. I've watched like five of their last seven games, and I'm like, man, if I'm scouting this team, I'm not really sure I know where to start. Yeah, I think, you know, to your last point, I do think having Jalen out there with Porzingis and often with either Derek White or Drew Holiday all as a unit, I think has helped a lot. Um, Porzingis missed a few games in a row there, and I think those numbers got a little out of whack because of that. Um, but yeah, look, when those six guys are healthy, they're the only team in the league among these elite teams that is an elite team at both ends of the court. You can count them on them being an elite offensive team and you can count on them being an elite defensive team, which is always the, you know, the true, you know, inner circle title contenders. You want to be in the top 10 in both categories or preferably in the top five. Boston, I think, I think, I think Philly is going to have a case against your statement right there, but please go ahead. I just yeah, want to we'll, make we'll, sure. I, Philly, I can hear the Philly fans screaming as they scream at Santa, so I just want to just stop screaming. Don't worry, Philly fans. We've got a lot of positive things to say about Philly later on. But uh, the Celtics are the one team I think you could definitively say has a case to be that good at both ends when everybody's healthy. Now, like you said, they have some guys with injury issues. We'll see how that plays out. I do think that there are a couple things, if you want to look at them, if you want to poke holes, in their candidacy. One is, frankly, they just don't have a top player good enough, in theory, to win a title. In my opinion, generally, if you look at the teams that win titles, if you go back over the past many years, you probably have to have a top five player in the league. Jason Tatum's awesome. He's probably somewhere between six and ten, which is really, really good, but I wouldn't quite put him in the top five. Um, But the Celtics have made up for that if you have to make up for that in quotes, because they have the best top six in the league. They might have six of the best 40 or 50 players in the league on their team. It's a lot of team that's reminiscent in a lot of ways, I think, even though it's a much different era 
to the 2004 Pistons and the way they're put together and the way they can do stuff at both ends. And they're interchangeable with so many different guys. Um, and the other thing that's been a long time bugaboo with this team and has been a problem at times this season has been their late game offense. Last time they lost in Indy, went to the game, played the Pacers in the in-season tournament. Final three or four minutes of that game, their offense grounded to a halt. The Pacers ran them off the court. Tyrese Halliburton made a bunch of big plays. Celtics couldn't match them. They end up losing the game. Now, again, I'm poking holes a little bit just to play devil's advocate because I do think they are the best team. And I think if their guys are healthy, I'll pick them to win any series they're in because, um, you know, Porzingis has fit in beautifully. Their defense, when they have the four perimeter guys with him out there, is pretty ridiculous. Al Horford has settled in really nicely off the bench. They might have the two best defensive guards in the league and Derek White, Drew Holiday, um, certainly the best defensive backcourt by a mile. Um, so I like you like a lot of stuff about their team. I think they've gotten off to a terrific start. Joe Mazzulla, I think, has done a really nice job, has grown in areas as a coach this year, which has helped them. But, you know, there are a couple things you can poke holes in if you want to on the other side. But they've done nothing, like you said, to change my opinion from where it was at the beginning of training camp. Or if this group is healthy going into the playoffs, I'm picking them to win the East and I'm picking them to win the title because they're the one team I could count on to be elite at both ends when it gets down to it at the end of the day. So Porzingis missed that game against Indiana. And the talking point after that game was, well, look what happens to their offense without Porzingis. Look how much more dynamic and well-spaced the court is and all that. I think there's something to that. That's why they traded for him. to be, you know, I mean, a big part of it was to have that secondary option, to have a guy they could throw to as a mismatch in the post, to have a pick-and-pop threat um, on top of that. Like, it, it's not surprising that it was missed in that game because that's a big part of what they wanted to change up. And if you go back to the first, it's very early in the season. If you go back to the first game they played at home against Miami, team that they have struggled with in the playoffs at times, Bam Adebayo had to be locked on to Chris Esporzingis in that game, and it totally changed the way the Heat covered them in a way that they didn't have to the last couple times they played in the playoffs. Well, look, I mean, the whole concept of the Celtics with Porzingis can be boiled down to this. We think against most teams, pointedly, maybe not the Sixers, though we'll see, that we can hide our centers anywhere we want. And you can't do that against us. Your centers have to guard Porzingis in our starting five. Otherwise, who are they going to guard? Marcus Smart was the closest thing to that answer. Marcus Smart's gone. Al Horford is is coming off the bench, and the Horford-Porzingis lineups have just been kind of so-so. The Celtics are dying for teams to like try to hide their centers on Derek White. And I think we might see teams do it with Drew Holiday here and there. And the Celtics are excited, like, okay, you want to do that? Like, we, we, we think we're ready. That's the whole concept of the Celtics. And why Porzingis is so different, everyone's focusing on the posting up the mismatches, and he's been good at that. Rolling to the rim, and he's been good at that. His shooting is just so much different than Al Horford's. The speed of his release, his size, his willingness to shoot, like he is a lethal, lethal shooter to the point where when you pick and pop with him, if you don't switch, a third defender has to rotate to him or else he is actually going to make enough of those threes to beat you. And when the third defender rotates, that opens up cuts to the rim, the extra pass and all that. And I've said before, the one number, if I'm poking a hole in Boston, the one number I'm looking at is they are 25th in the percentage of their shots that come at the rim. And they're 21st in free throw rate. 
and I just want those numbers to be a little bit higher. They don't have to be so high because they're shooting tons of threes, tons of catch-and-shoot threes. They're shooting all the kind of shots you want from the perimeter. I just want more offense that's a little bit of a sure thing. And I've said before, like I just wish their default approach at the rim was not drive and kick every single time. Like Sometimes there's a layup or a foul, or an offensive rebound, if you just get a little nasty, get a little grimy, like even Al Horford last night had this kickout pass against Orlando, and it resulted in a made three for someone, where if he had just turned and pivoted, he had a dunk, it's like, big fella, just take the dunk, or make them hack you, unless you've forgotten how to shoot free throws, because you've taken like seven the entire year, just take the dunk, and then I wrote that a couple weeks ago, my 10 things I wrote, number one item in the column, the stat I'm obsessed with, with the Celtics, percentage of their shots that come at the rim. And it was about 29, 30% at the time. That's where it is now. It's low. And a little birdie from within the Celtics reached out and said, next time you run those numbers, run them with Porzingis on the floor with the two J's and see where they are. Because I bet they're higher. They're higher. It's about 34, 35% in those scenarios, which would rank like top 10, top 11 in the league. That's why Porzingis is so important offensively to this team because it just opens up the floor. And I think to Tatum's credit, and Browns, but more so Tatum's, they are playing... The, like Tatum... To, okay, I want to do the Tatum thing. You just you just created bulletin board material for Celtics fans and the team. You know that, right? I mean, sure. Okay. <laughs> and I don't disagree <laughs> with first, you. Like, not the first time I've done that for some player or like, some team. So if fine. you list, like Tatum wouldn't be on my MVP ballot right now. You just released your, your um, you, you've sent well, out the missives. Yeah, I haven't released it yet. Straw poll you sent out the text asking for the straw poll results. Yep. I gave you mine already. I responded promptly by my standards. I appreciate that. <clears throat> Tatum's not on my ballot. And if you list out like the top whatever guys in the league, he's not in the top five. That's just true. And yet, when I watch, and I know that conceptually, like you could even argue, you can't argue this in a real life, but you could if you wanted to just be a kind of a, a disturber. Like the Kawhi Leonard that's played the last 15 games is maybe a better player than Jason Tatum, if not definitely a better player than Jason sure. Tatum. And the whole point of Jason Tatum is like that dude never misses games. We don't know when Kawhi Leonard is going to start missing games. Um, and yet, Tim, when I watch the Celtics, maybe I'm just pie in the sky. I just never feel like they're at a top tier talent disadvantage. Like I don't I just feel like Tatum is good enough on both ends of the floor to be that guy. And statistically it's funny, his stats are kind of like eh this season when you mm-hmm. really stack them up against the best guys. Yep. I think qualitatively he's better this season and by that I mean I think he's making a more concerted effort to get to the rim, to get grimy, to get offensive rebounds, to get free throws. I think his passing is just like a little bit when he when he dials into it, the passes are like a little bit earlier, a little bit more on target, and defensively he's rock solid. I, it's it's an interesting point you bring up, and it's factually correct about the best player on title teams. It's just not something I feel when I watch Boston, and and you said it to me, and it's like maybe I maybe that's my fault. Maybe I need to watch the team through a different lens, but I just don't feel that. Well, it's not like I said, it's less that I think that they're not good enough. I think I picked them to win the title, right? They just have to do it in a little bit different way than the typical teams that win the title are going to do it, right? Like if you just list the the teams that have won championships in recent years, best players, Nicole Jokic, Steph Curry, 
Giannis Tenecupo, LeBron James, Kawhi Leonard. Uh, you know, like for as great as Jason Tatum is, he's not on that quite that level. He's like half a level below, right? Which if you have six of the top 40 players in the league, which they do, it might not matter. It probably, I think it won't matter. I think they're going to win ultimately. But it, if, like I said, if you're just trying to construct the why aren't the Celtics going to win argument, like if they go into the finals and they're playing Denver, they're not going to have the best player. Quite often, whoever has the best player in a series tends to win the series. Like that's just sort of how productive NBA playoff basketball gets to be. Maybe as you're saying this, part of the reason my brain has not gone here is that I have seen the Celtics beat Philadelphia multiple times in playoff series when Philadelphia (laughs) has the best player. Has the best player. Beat Milwaukee two years ago in a playoff series when Milwaukee had the best player. Now, they didn't have Chris Middleton. It's still unclear what version of Chris Middleton they will have in April and May, and if he'll be able to play every game, I assume that he will. Maybe Maybe it's just that simple. Like I've seen the movie of them beating these guys in playoff series before. Well, it's also I think it's also why the Celtics have played more playoff games the past seven years than any team in a seven-year span that hasn't won a title, right? Because they generally have more overall talent, and they tend to eventually win, but it's always hard, right? Basically against every team they play. And that's just the way they, they, and they, like I said, this is, I don't, wasn't trying to turn this into some bash Jason Tatum fest. He's one of the 10 best players in the league. He's an elite two way player. I agree with you on the way he's fit in with the team. I think he's done a pretty fantastic job of stepping back a little bit from a stat standpoint, making sure that Porzingis is integrated, making sure Drew Holiday is integrated. Um, I wrote a story last month about how he got, these six guys together and made sure that everybody was on the same page about who was going to be starting and coming off the bench and wanted to clear the air with everybody before the season started, which I thought was a pretty notable sign of leadership growth from him. Um, And frankly, I think part of the reason I shouldn't say part of the reason, but I think a benefit to Marcus smart being traded is that he was such a huge part of the Celtics for so long that created a bit of a vacuum that, by definition, as the best player, Jason Tatum had to step into to fill from a leadership perspective. So I think he's awesome. And I think the Celtics as a team fit pretty seamlessly. But if, like I said, if you're just trying to, if you're just playing the devil's advocate of, well, why might this team not win? I do think sometimes their offense can grind to a halt. They don't necessarily get the easiest shots, which is why they got Porzingis. Um, You know, like any team that's a little top heavy, the injury bug could be a factor. And at the highest level, they're probably not going to mano a mano have the best guy, but they're going to have the best six guys. And they're, the theory of the case for them is if their six guys are healthy, they're going to be good enough to win. And like we've talked about a bunch, everything we've seen from the first third of the season is that they're the best team in basketball when they're healthy and out there on the court together. They're also 14-0 and at home. And I do wonder, you know, they were uneven at home in the playoffs last season, kind of famously so. Um, yes. the last couple of seasons, actually. Um, I, so it makes me wonder, like, how much are they going to care about being the number one seed, if not the number one overall seed um, in getting home court? Because they've been absolutely dominant at home the whole year. I, I just I, I guess part of the reason I maybe my brain goes the way it does with the Celtics is I they're third in defense right now. And I think we're all guilty of it. I'm guilty of it. We just spent 15 minutes talking about their offense and what kind of shots they get. 
I think we take their defense for granted and assume yep. that it's there. I think this is the second best defensive team in the league if you grant Minnesota number one and they've earned that perch. I think this is the the second most complete defense in the league. Maybe I'll, the I'll mo- actually I'll adjust that slightly. I think they're the best playoff defense in the league by a very significant amount. They could be because of their schematic versatility, I would assume is what you're going to say. I, th- I, yep. I do think they have the most. And if you look at their defense, <clears throat> I mean, we, we know the defensive talent up and down the roster is ridiculous. Second in opposing free throw rate, so they don't give up free throws. Fourth in defensive rebounding, they don't give up offensive rebounds. They don't force turnovers, but that's the trade-off they're willing to make. And it's a trade-off that works for them if they do everything else right. And they are doing everything else right. To wit, they allow the fourth fewest shots at the rim and the ones that and the lowest field goal percentage at the rim of any defense. That's Porzingis, that's rim protection, that's rim protection from everybody. Like if Derek White's at the rim, you better watch the hell out. And it looks like they allow allow a lot of threes. And this is the most interesting emerging thing about the Celtics defense. They allow the sixth most threes in the league, which seems bad. Then you break it down. They allow the most, the most above the break threes in the league and the fourth fewest corner threes. That's the biggest split I can remember like that. And it and it doesn't get to be that way by accident. They are doing something on purpose in terms of how and when they help to force some shots and 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 sort of allow other shots. I just think this team is like when they have everybody, and and again, I realize what we're saying when they have everybody a lot, they are like absolutely rock solid impenetrable on defense and that is the reason I believe in them probably more than anything else well listen they I mean I was bullish on the Celtics after the Porzingis trade I really liked it I do not think anyone has talked anywhere near enough about trading Malcolm Brogdon and Robert Williams for Drew Holiday see I was not bullish on the Celtics after the Porzingis trade I was like a little bit like "Ooh, this is weird I don't know but and as soon as they got Holiday I was like oh now I'm bullish again. I'm picking him to win the title. Yeah, I, I like the first deal uh, for a variety of reasons. But, I mean, it just has not been talked about enough by anybody what the upgrade was from going from Malcolm Brogdon in the rotation to Drew Holiday. Like, it's just such a, just a massive, massive shift to get him on the eve of training camp, to get him from arguably your biggest rival in the league, uh, albeit through a third party over the span of a few days. He's he has been a seamless fit. He and Derek White are awesome on the court together. They're probably they're two of the most versatile players in the league. They've they've just fit together perfectly. And yeah, I they're those six guys just fit together so well in any combination you want to roll them out there together. That yeah, I, I'm with you. Uh, it's it's been everything I expected to see and then some from them. And while some of it is you know to your point earlier about the the combo with the NBA Today crew. There is a bit of, all right, let's see this in the playoffs now, just because they have knocked on the door so many times. This is a materially different group, and I do think they have everything in place where if they get there with those guys on the court and ready to go, they've got a chance to really take off and and be a pretty dominant team this year. They're also, unlike the other two teams we're going to talk about shortly, they've played the toughest schedule in the NBA, according to opponent winning percentage now, Schedule strength is a funny thing. If the Orlando Magic go into a slump at some point, the Celtics' strength of schedule will take a hit because they've already played them three or four times, and they've been very good all season. But they've played a tough schedule, three more home than road games, but still, um, you keep mentioning top six, top six, top six, as does everybody with the Celtics. That's the starters in Horford. 
Then after that, we've got the alleged weakness of the team, right? That the, the weakness that they're thin, they're top heavy. They're going to address this via trade. Peyton I like Pr Sam Hauser and Peyton Pritchard, by the way. I like their seventh and eighth guys more than most people. Sam Hauser is, is a good player. Peyton Pritchard has been good, and they're knocking down shots, and they're competing defensively. Sam Hauser being 6'8 is an underrated part of why he's yep. good. He, he's big enough that he can hang on defense, and I've said this before on this podcast. When other teams throw their offense out the window to attack Sam Hauser, the Celtics like it. Unless it's like one of the top eight players in the league attacking Sam Hauser, it becomes a little problematic. The Celtics are like, you want to throw your playbook out the window and totally bog down your offense to attack this dude? Go ahead. We're fine with it. And I think the question that, you know, has been on everyone's mind is will they will they upgrade their depth? And you go to Cornette, Cornette is the ninth guy, has been totally like good. He's been good for them yep. on both ends of the floor when they've had to use them. That gets you to nine right there. And, you know, when I look at like, okay, so the Celtics, they have picks to trade on like a lot of these other contenders, though the Sixers obviously just fortified their bushel of picks, which we'll talk about. Mm -hmm. You know, the talk before the season was, well, they'll trade some, they'll trade for a big man somewhere along the way. I look at their team. I'm like, they have three legit centers, Porzingis, Horford, Cornette, whatever you think of Cornette. He's a decent player. They have a whole bunch of ball handling, Tatum, Brown, White, Holiday, Pritchard, and all of their plus minus numbers, all their guys have good plus minus numbers. All these core guys are way positive. Pritchard, Hauser, whatever. When they mix their starters in their bench, it's working. I start to ask myself, like, what kind of player do they actually need, like, positionally or skill-wise, and who could that player realistically be, given that it's tough for them to get up to, like, 8 or $9 million in tradable salary without going into their top six, plus their tax situation. So I have a list of guys, but if you ask me, like, what type of player... I've actually, let me ask you, like, skill set positionally, like, what type of player would you be aiming for? Honestly, I don't think, I mean, it's sort of similar to the conversation we'll have with Philly in a bit. I think they could just use another player or two to have a little extra depth because I don't guy. really, yeah. What I, and I think they have some flexibility to go by position. I would probably want another perimeter player if I was choosing because um, I think that. You know, if they need to play Luke Cornett in a pinch in the playoffs, I think they'll be fine. And I think you're basically going to be rolling without Horford and Chris Asporzingis at center all the time in the playoffs anyway. So I don't really think that's as big of a need. Um, and, and to me, this is more like, well, you have some foul trouble in a game or you know, maybe you miss a guy for a game or two. Can you find a guy to plug in in the right spot who's going to give you what you want? And ideally, is somebody that's got some cost control because this team is going to be extraordinarily expensive moving forward also. So, but I, I think because of their depth and versatility of the guys above them, I, I really think it's just a matter of, can they find one more player to give them a little more depth going into the playoffs where they have a little versatility to withstand, uh, you know, one injury on the perimeter or foul trouble or just given a different look in a game. I think, I think you're right. I think, it, and I think they will get another player at some point, one way or another. If you ask me positionally, I kind of want a 3.5 to a 4. I want someone who can play some 4 for me. Just ideally, uh, ideally, ironically, that was Grant Williams, who's now a member of the Dallas Mavericks. Yes. And again, it's just, but like. And by the way, it should be said, the Celtics, uh, the Celtics cheaped out in a couple ways on the Grant Williams thing. One, they could have just signed him, and they didn't. 
It was a reasonable contract. The second one was they could have taken on Reggie Bullock and gotten this very valuable future pick swap from the Mavs in 2030 or 2029. I think it's 2030. And San Antonio took Reggie Bullock and the pick swap to basically save Boston money in that deal. Now, the Celtics went and got Drew Holiday later. Obviously, I think they're going to win. But to your point, the, the one thing you would probably like to have is another wing defender slash shooter, which is exactly what Grant Williams is. So that will just be a subplot to follow during the year if at some point they need that kind of guy because they had that kind of guy who was a playoff-proven guy, and now they don't. And again, to be clear, you got to cap your guy – your theoretical Celtic at about $10 million because that's, and even then the bar to get that guy is high because you're trading Pritchard in these deals and Pritchard's been a good player for them. I don't really know that I feel like I need to do anything at this point, but do you have any names that you've seen across the league that are intriguing to you as theoretical Celtics trade targets? I think the obvious one that makes a ton of sense to me is John Conchar. He's on a really cheap extension for the next three years. He's, he's on my list. A... He's circled right here in red. Conchar. Yes, there he is. I mean, he's he's a pretty obvious fit. I, I really like him. He's a versatile defender. He can hit an open shot. Smart player. Would fit, I think, really well with how Boston wants to play. And most importantly, he signed for the next three years for, I think, a combined 18 or $19 million. And... You know, and he's also only making a couple million this year. So getting him on their team money wise is doable uh, pretty easily without having to sacrifice any key players. And it gives them some flexibility going forward if they need to make some salary moves where they've got a guy who's a proven quality rotation player to plug in their lineup. And, you know, obviously, given where Memphis is at this year with the amount of uh, draft capital they've invested in wing players over the last few years and younger players. That might be a guy that the Celtics can get for a reasonable price that would check a lot of boxes for them in terms of depth and versatility and salary going forward. Now, I don't have Bobby Marks's cap genius on right now to help us, but one of the appeals of Conchar, what does he make this year? I think just over two. Right. So Conchar, leave Conchar aside then because that's easy. Another guy on my list of similar ilk is Jetty Osmond, who makes six and change, almost seven. Without consulting totally with Bobby Marks, the Celtics have enough guys who make $2 million a year that that's the kind of player Conchar obviously qualifies to. They can get without even trading out of their top nine, like or top eight. Like they could cobble enough money that Peyton Pritchard doesn't have to go out in, the, in those deals. You start talking about other names on my list are like Royce O'Neal or uh, Matisse Thibel or guys like that in the $9, $10 million range. Pritchard is going out in those deals, and so how additive are they really to your team? So I liked those names, like Royce, uh, Jetty Osmond, Conchar, Simone Fontecchio made an appearance on my long list of guys. Like Once you start getting up to $10, 12000000 it just becomes too difficult to do without trading out of, out of your court. You know, the Sixers are 18 and 7. They've played the fourth easiest schedule in the league. Fine. They are now tied with the Indiana Pacers for first in offense, fifth in defense, plus 16 points per 100 possessions with Joel Embiid on the floor, plus 17 and a half with Embiid and Maxi on the floor. 
Their new starting lineup of Maxi Melton, Batum, Harris, Embiid is plus 144 in 203 minutes. Let me repeat that. In 203 <laughs> minutes, that lineup has outscored the opposition by 144 points, which is the equivalent <laughs> to winning a 48-minute basketball game by 34 points. It a lot is. Of points. It is, despite coming together relatively recently and Batum missing some games, the number one plus minus by a landslide of any five-man lineup in the NBA with number two being the Celtics starting lineup. Now, the schedule is about to turn tougher. The Pistons and the Wizards of the world, who Joel Embiid again, the NBA has got to just ban Embiid from playing against these teams. It's literally like child's play for him. He can just do whatever he wants. He only averaged 38 and 12 this week on 66% shooting and didn't play the fourth quarter in any of the four games. It, it's it, he should, they shouldn't let him play the first quarter. Something like that should be the, <laughs> so to your point, I'm interested to see who wins your straw poll because Embiid is now averaging. I had his numbers, uh, 34 points, 12 rebounds, six assists. Much has been made of his passing justifiably. So, on 50, 53% shooting, 57% on twos. And the advanced stats, which always favor Jokic. It's always Jokic, Jokic just laps the field and the warps and the sharps. Embiid is number one in player efficiency rating, number one in win shares per 48, number one in EPM estimated plus minus, which is a nerd stat that I only kind of understand. Honestly, he, I think he might be the MVP right now over Jokic, which is crazy considering the start that Jokic got off to. At the very least, they are neck and neck, however you want to slice it. And I will say this too, Tim Bontemps. Number five in defense to Philadelphia 76ers. They, um, they allow a low shooting percentage all over the floor, particularly at the basket. And Embiid... When he's the closest defender, he's number one in challenging shots at the rim. Most shots challenged per game at the rim, which is a change for him. He's normally like top five, top six, not number one. And he's allowing only 50% shooting on those shots at the rim, which is an elite, elite figure. He's typically been around 60. I guess like the, the defensive player of the year case seems like open and shut for Gobert, and maybe it will be by the end. But like Embiid is making a run at at first team all defense and MVP in the same season. I think this team, the, the last time I talked about the East, I, I had the question to Doris Burke, who do you have more faith in right now, Philly or Milwaukee? And we both said Philly. Look, yeah, I was could, listening. I was listening. I was waiting for you both to get to the point you wanted to make, which you, which you both wanted to say Philly, and then you did. And like, look, you could say Milwaukee, you know, you can you can say their duos are have been relatively equal so far this year. Maxi and Embiid on one hand, Lillard and Giannis on the other hand. The latter has more, I think, sort of um, postseason pedigree and star power, considering Maxi is relatively new to this level of play in this stage. But if those duos have been equal, then you go to the next guy and you want to say, well, in theory, the Bucks have the better third best guy in Chris Middleton, but I, that hasn't really been the case this year. And after that, Philly's roster just makes a lot of sense and has been really good, even though they haven't made this trade that they supposedly would like to make. And I think still would like to make the only hole in this team right now, other than this trade that they might want to make to upgrade their roster one way or another, is they're getting a little bit lucky with shooting on both ends of the floor. They have been nails from everywhere. Second in mid range shooting fifth and three point shooting and teams have been cold from everywhere 
especially as jump shooters from the mid-range. Some of that is luck. Some of that is the Sixers are just awesome. I honestly, man, I can't believe, I, I can believe it. I'm, I'm a little surprised how good this team is. And part of it is that they've inflated their numbers against the dregs of the league. But this team is amazing. And Embiid is just on another planet right now. Well, look, there's, there's a lot of things to unpack there, right? The first is... Uh, We'll have a bunch of Joel Embiid com- content this week uh, ahead of Christmas Day. And uh, I can tell you that uh, the big fella would agree with your assessment about his defense and that he does not get enough credit for his defense. No, well, you're getting enough that. credit right now, Joel Embiid. On December 18th, I just said, like, do we need to reopen the defense player of the year conversation somehow? Well, uh, yes. Well, he will He will be happy to hear that, the big fella. Uh, now, as far as the Sixers themselves, Yes, they have played uh, a few patsies in a row here and have beaten up on them to a ridiculous uh, degree. Um, Rough weekend for the Pistons, by the way. The Wizards get a W and then almost beat the Suns, and the Spurs get a W, and the Pistons are like, oh, man, we have some company for a while. Now it's just us. It's been a lot of rough weekends and days for the Pistons for a while. Um, What I I would say is the the thing that's really been most important about this season, and Joel has been – unbelievable and we'll see what happens in the straw poll this week um like i said we'll be hearing from joel a bunch this week uh on our air but um the thing that has really changed the sixers since october is the emergence of tyrese Maxey as a legitimate star and throughout the summer daryl morey kept saying as there was talk about this james harden trade and what it was going to look like and how it was going to go kept saying we either have to get a star back where you have to get the pieces back to get a star. I would say now that formula has changed. I think now the Sixers have their two stars in Joel Embiid and Tyrese Maxey. And I think now what the Sixers have to do between now and the trade deadline is find one or two pieces, probably at least two, that fit with those guys, that complement what they have to accentuate what they have. And I think if they can do that, I think they've got a chance to win the East this year. And I think that rather than just going, getting another star and like, that's the one path they have to get to like, get that kind of a guy. I don't know if they, I don't think they have to do that anymore because they do have this depth around these guys. And if they get a couple good players to add to their rotation, then you have the ability to resign to Anthony Melton, to resign Tobias Harris, to resign those players that you get if they're expiring on expiring deals, maybe convince Nick Batum, who Joel Embiid loves having on the team as to Nick nurse to not retire. Uh, after the Paris Olympics next year because he has fit in perfectly with this team from the moment they got him. They were thrilled to get him in the trade, and he has been fantastic for them. Um, And then you've got this depth around these guys with guys that fit the way Nick Nurse wants to play, that play well off of Embiid and Maxi, And they do have a group that you could begin to argue then has the high-end upside to challenge Boston at the top of the East and I think would be the top challenger to Boston in the East because of the structural flaws that the Bucks have that we've seen throughout the year. And I'm sure we'll talk about before we're done. Um, so yeah, to me, that's what's really changed for as great as Joel has been. The emergence of Maxi just has given them a lot more optionality. And as we know, Daryl Morey is as aggressive as any GM in the league when it comes to in-season trades. And I'll be very surprised if the Sixers don't make some moves to improve this roster between now and February 9th or 10th when the trade deadline is. Yeah, me too. And I made some calls over the weekend and today, like, this this stretch of play in which they've been so dominant, one of the real good things that Daryl Moore brings to the table as a GM, and Elton Brand is fantastic too, is they are 
are so big picture thinking, cold and rational that they will not get caught up in this moment the way that other front offices might. Like this has not changed their view that, yeah, we we could obviously use another guy. I, I said last month with Doris that I, I think they would like to get another ball handler, another guy they feel could reliably sort of get the offense from point A to point B when teams take the ball out of Maxi's hands or double Joel in the post or whatever it ends up being. Like Joel's post touches are obviously down. He's migrated even more to the nail and all that. I don't know who that guy is. There will be a lot of Alex Caruso buzz between now and the trade deadline. The vibe I get is they're not in a hurry. They want to see what they look like. They want to see what they look like against better teams, starting with Minnesota. In a couple days, they play the Bulls tonight, so we'll see how that game goes. The Bulls, of course, have been better. Um, without the checked out version of Zach Levine that was playing before them. Um, but to your point, like Melton has has found his game after a, a, a bit of a rocky start. He's been fantastic. Tobias Harris actually kind of tailed off and had had a good weekend game. Um, Ubre's back, Batum has fit hand in glove. This team's deep. They have a they they know who they are. They know how they want to play, and they have two star players in one MVP level player who's playing the best he's ever played. And I agree with you. I think they're a good matchup for Boston. You know, it's tempting to sort of, oh, they never get out of the second round. Same old Sixers. Lost to Boston last year. Oh, up 3-2, blew the lead. Up 3-2 is kind of shoved under the rug a little bit in what happened in that series. They were up 3-2 against Boston. Yes, Boston, oh, it's not a rivalry. It can't be a rivalry because one team wins all the time. That's what Boston Boston fans love to lord that over the Sixers. Every time we play you, we beat you when it matters. Some like It was close last year, and I think this team is, is a good matchup for Boston in part and maybe especially because the whole thesis that I said about Boston before, we can move our centers around and where we want defensively. You can't. I know they put Drew Holiday on Joel Embiid, and that was interesting for a matchup. I think you give the Sixers a game of that. They they find ways around it, and it becomes a test for Joel. And like it's kind of fitting that Joel has surged back to the top of the MVP race or neck and neck with Jokic by fattening up on these bad teams because the last frontier for him is how do you play against the best teams on the biggest stages? And I think he wouldn't even admit to you that he has not played up to the level that he wants to play at and thinks he can play at in the second round of the playoffs. Some of that is injuries. I know the whole injury history. It's Some of it is just bad luck injuries, to, to be yep. totally honest. But I think he yep. would concede that. And now the tests are going to become sterner. And the Celtics, if they were to play in the playoffs, will poke and prod at him in interesting ways defensively and say, hey, man, yeah, we'll put Drew Holiday on you. Play us out of it. See if you can play us out of it. And... You know, at some point he's going to have to play him out of it and play the Sixers beyond the second round of the playoffs. But man, this team is—it's a really great story because Maxi by himself is a really great story. And you nailed it. Like, we don't need to get a star; we can just go out and get a role player or two that can round out our team, kind of sim- similar to Boston. Yep. Well, and the thing—the th- and the thing that Joel talks about a lot, right, is how chaotic his time in Philly has been, and how they haven't had the ability to build any kind of solid foundation of anything because there's just been this constant churn of chaos and guys coming in and out. And you have Jimmy Butler there for half a year. Then you have the Ben Simmons situation blow up. Then you have the James Harden situation blow up. You have Markel Fultz, you know, come in the league and then forget how to shoot. You have Joel at the beginning of his career, missed the first years of his career with injuries. Like there's just, there's just always something around the corner. Right. And I think, the other thing about Max's emergence and the arrival of Nick Nurse, both, 
that I think potentially changes the paradigm for these guys is now you look at the Sixers and there's a runway going forward where you should say, assuming Joel doesn't, you know, get up and say, you know, it's time for me to leave. They have the runway with this group, with Nick Nurse and Joel Embiid and Tyrese Maxey, where you could realistically say in 2027, these guys should all still be together and they should still all be together. And then you can plan forward with, hey, we've got these two guys. What do we need to maximize around those guys? What are the pieces we could find to accentuate what those guys can do and make them as good as possible? The Sixers have just been going from one plan to another, to another, to another for basically the last five years. And I think this is really the first time you can look at their team and have a long-term vision of what you want to do. And I, I think that's just a fundamental change from where this team has been. And it, it puts them in a position to not only be aggressive over the next couple of months, but be aggressive with guys that they think will fit. And I think to your point, that's why they're going to be patient over the next couple of months. I don't mean they're making a move today, but they, they now can target guys to specifically fit with these players they have because they know this is a core group that should be together now for a while. They also feel fresh in, in a way that even goes beyond just kind of harden out new guys in Maxi assuming the lead ball handler role and all that means for the different kind of style of his two-man game with Embiid is just so much faster. It can come from different places at different speeds and different mechanisms than the Harden one, which is kind of the same thing every time. They're seventh in offensive rebounding. This is a team that could not rebound on either, could not and would not rebound on yep. either end of the floor. They're seventh in offensive rebounding. Embiid's offensive rebounding is at a career high level for him. And if you add offensive rebounding to their offense, they're good at everything. They always get to the line. They don't turn the ball over. They take good shots, and they're getting offensive rebounds. And they're they now they have a transition attack. That's a yes. maxi Huge versus difference. Harden thing. Huge, Huge difference. difference. They're getting points in transition. They never got points in transition. And and obviously, unpredictable has kind of been the buzzword around Philly this year. Like we wanted our offense to be a little bit more unpredictable. They've accomplished mm -hmm. that, but it goes beyond just like where Embiid is and how he's getting the ball. There's a freshness to this team that is, I think. Well, not to use the same word again, refreshing. Another team that freshened itself up over um, the offseason. And I think no one is sleeping on the Bucks, but I think they've been relegated to third wheel in the East a little too aggressively. And I think they are a victim of... I've led the, the charge on that, so I'll I'll, uh, I'll. No, no, no. I I'm not okay. We'll we'll let you continue leading the charge. But yeah. I, I think their first ten to twelve games were so strange and disjointed, and they haven't shed all of that disjointedness. I was going to say they just had they just had a bit of a a uh, an incident the other day with the Pacers that we I think would talk, only carry through the craziness. <laughs> we will talk about that um, because it was insane. Um, it sure was. And, um, and and then, you know, they begin the season with Terry Stotts leaving out of nowhere and a lot of buzz about like, what the hell is going on in Milwaukee with the new coach and have, what's happening and what's the, what's going on there. Um, and Dame and Giannis aren't running pick and roll and where's the chemistry and Dame shooting is, is way below normal. Well, all of a sudden you look up in their 19 and seven and yeah, you can say, they have outperformed the record they have. Like they've won a lot of close games. Part of that is Dame. Part of that is luck. They've played 16 home games 
and 10 road games. Well, okay, you're going to have to win on the road. They've played the second easiest schedule in the NBA. Okay, well, that's going to get harder. Fine. They're still 19-7. and They're third in offense. 21st in defense. Sounds bad. It's bad. It's not good. It's not good. <laughs> It's it's, no, it's trending. Not. It's trending like the little engine that could. It's like gradually going up the hill, trending in the right direction. Um, against the second easiest schedule in the league. Against the second easiest schedule in the league, and they they are uh, they don't allow a lot of free throws. Their defensive rebound has been kind of shaky. We'll talk about that. They allow the six fewest threes and the six fewest shots at the rim. Those are good things. Mm-hmm. Just a little engine that could is chugging, chugging chugging um the dame Giannis pick and roll still isn't there and, and we can talk about maybe why that is but their chemistry is getting a little better Giannis has been outstanding dame has been good and now trending toward great yeah again pat Connaughton's back jay carter will be back at some point chris middleton you know look here's the if you're a bucks optimist tim here's your stat with their four best guys on the floor Giannis, dame middleton lopez mm-hmm. plus 17 per 100 possessions Plus yep. 91 in 250 minutes. That's your stat. The fifth guy is obviously something of an uncertainty. And I think if anyone thought Malik Beasley was going to be the answer on defense before the season, they were quickly disabused of that notion. Yes. I don't know what the answer to that question is. Not sure it's Andre Jackson Jr., although I'm happy they're playing him. I wish they would play Beauchamp more, and maybe they will. Crowder will come back. Connaughton is back. It does it. It, the bar is real high in the East, but I'm just saying, like, they're trending toward, like, hey, don't forget about us status. Is that fair, at least? Oh, yeah. Listen, I mean, uh, like I said, I have led the charge on the Bucks issues because I think they are bigger issues, and I thought they were bigger issues than we're led to believe from the moment they made the Dame Lillard trade, frankly. But at the end of the day, they have Giannis Tedekupo, they have Damian Lillard. If they have Chris Middleton and Brooke Lopez healthy with those two guys... When the playoffs start, they absolutely are going to be a threat to beat not just the Celtics, not just the Sixers, but to beat everybody and to win. I mean, I think you sort of have to put them as a higher class version of what the Lakers were last year, where when you have two players as good as Giannis and Dame on your team, you have the ability to beat anybody because those guys could just beat anybody in any in any game, in any series, right? Like, again, if we're talking about Boston playing Milwaukee in a playoff series, the Celtics have all these advantages in that series. Giannis is clearly the best player, right? And, like, that's just a fundamental advantage that Milwaukee's going to have against basically any team they play. And that matchup, ironically, like, I talked a lot about, including with you before the season, imagining how it would play out. Imagining what the void of Grant Williams as a Giannis defender would be. But imagining how useful Derek White and Drew Holiday would be guarding Damian Lillard and all this. And the Sixers have invaded that whole conversation, and I've thought well, and by less the way, about that matchup head-to-head since then. Yes, exactly. And by the way, in the game they played in Boston, which I was at, the Celtics had Drew Holiday guard Giannis, and although Milwaukee made a late push in that game to make it close, the Celtics controlled that game virtually from start to finish, and all of these structural problems that I think Milwaukee has in that matchup Came to four. And I said, I said in those discussions that we were having on this podcast, I said, okay, so who guards Giannis? You know, it can't be Grant Williams. He's gone. Can't be Horford all the time. And I said then, the answer is going to have to be a little bit of everyone. At some points, yes. it might be Drew Holiday. At some points, it might be Jalen Brown. And to your point, that game, which was one of the flashbulb games of the season, 
that felt like, I mean, I watched that game just like you did. That felt like a statement from Boston. Like they were clearly the better team that night. They were just clearly better. I know. Yeah. Milwaukee made like the kind of semi fake late game comeback. They, that was a comfortable game for Boston. No question. Uh, They had that one circled. They went into it focused and motivated. And again, like, my issue with the Bucs from a very high-end thing, right? It goes back to what we talked about at the beginning with Boston. The Celtics don't really have any weaknesses, right? Like, you can come up with weaknesses like, you know, Tatum's not quite as good as Giannis, right? Bad, That's ma- kind bad, of a- bad mascot. <laughs> you're, you're the mascot guy. But, like, that's sort of a fake weakness, right? They have an elite offense. They have an elite defense. They're, they, they're, there's not obvious holes at either end of the court with them. But the Bucs... They have an incredible offensive engine with Giannis and Dame, even if they're not running the pick and roll at the rate that you or me or anybody else would like. Their offense is going to be unbelievable. And when those four guys are out there, they could score 140 a night on any on any team in the league, basically. They also are going to give up 140 because their defense is terrible. And the perimeter defense in particular is terrible. And to your point about what they could do to fix that, there isn't really an obvious fix. They don't really have anything to trade. They don't have a lot of salary to move, even if they do want to make a trade. So they kind of are what they are. And what they are might be good enough because Giannis and Dame might just be so good that they can overwhelm people and win. But their their flaws are very significant. And it's just, it's not often that you see a team get all the way through the playoffs and win a title when they have a flaw as significant as it appears the Bucks defense is. And even last year with Denver, Obviously, the paradigm has shifted a little bit with the offense versus defense thing in the league right now. Denver was still a solid defensive team. They weren't awful. They were a mid-tier defensive team, and when they had to get stops, they could get stops. And and the, the, the Bucs do not appear to have the ability to even do that. So if they're going to win, it's going to be because those two guys are that good and their offense is that good. And if they're getting into shootouts with these teams like Boston or even Philly or Denver or whoever. I just think it's a lot to ask for one end of the court to be as weak as it appears Milwaukee's will be to overcome that on a nightly basis when you're playing the best of the best of the best late in the playoffs. Um, But, you know, at the same time, I can totally understand the argument of you don't want to bet against Damon Giannis because those guys are unbelievable players. But, you know, I just... From the moment they made that holiday trade, I understand why they did it, but I just think it left them with some pretty massive structural flaws that I just don't see a realistic way for them to improve between now and April and May. See, to me, where the Lillard trade went bad for them was the trickle-down effect of Holiday going to Boston. Well, I think yes, Hol- that, that is obvious. Yeah. I think if Holiday goes anywhere else the way we talk about this trade, is is different. Um, so defensively, I think the bet they made was if we have Giannis and Brook, we're fine. And that bet has kind of been. I think it's. I think the jury's out still because with those two guys on the floor, they're allowing 112 points per 100 possessions. That would rank ninth among teams. That sounds good. It's actually kind of just okay because if those two are first team all defense level guys and your whole concept is they alone are good enough as long as the perimeter guys are not just falling over on screens and lighting the lighting the, themselves on fire right right um that number would would in theory 
be even better than just like borderline top 10. I mean, to your point, that's basically what the Jazz did with Rudy Gobert when they had pretty subpar defenders around him and they had the best defense of the league overall and especially with Rudy on the court. Now, obviously, that's peak Rudy Gobert, who's one of the elite perimeter defenders of, you know, maybe ever, certainly of a generation. But, you know, to your point, that's that's what you would like to see if you were going to rely on that as the bedrock of what they're going to do from playoff time. And and this is two guys. Gobert is one guy. He's right. As big as two guys, but he's one guy. <laughs> right. These right. are two guys. Right. Um, and but but, you know, that number, you could spin that number in encouraging ways, discouraging ways, whatever you want. Um, you know, and I think the third the, the next part of it is, well, the hope that Middleton gets back to being an average to slightly above average defender. Well, that's three fifths of the way toward a really good defense. Can we just finagle the other two fifths like Lillard is going to be what he is? Can we mm-hmm. get just enough competency from that fifth spot? But Giannis and Brooke can't play every minute. And in fact, if you look at the numbers, when one of them, so the Bucks are 18th in defense rebounding, which for them is bad. This team under Bud was top five every year, like clockwork. Yep. They prioritized it. They did it. With both of them on the floor, they're, they're equivalent to second in defensive rebounding. The minute you take one off, even if the other one is still on, they go all the way down to pretty much last other than the Wizards, which really is last. Um, and so I, I, I agree with you. Like This is the question that they're going to have to answer. I, th- I think they're going to be at the end of the season. They're 21st now. Not long ago, they were like 26th. I think they can get to like 15th, 14th, 13th, 16th. Again, the schedule is going to get tougher, so we'll see. I just, again, I'm not sure what there really is to be done about it other than we, if we dial in, if Middleton is healthy, if Crowder's healthy, and our offense is unbelievable, and it will be. Like, I, th- I think, look, are they third in the East right now? Yeah, that's just what they are. I think we could get to April and be like, it's a bunched up top three, but maybe not. I don't know. I just know well, this, like Giannis in the playoffs, like no one's excited to play that dude. No. And look, like you said, if if they can get to 12th or 13th or 14th in defense, that's worlds ahead of where they are now. So if they finish the year 13th, that means they've been playing the top 10-ish stretch of defense for a long time against better competition, right? If that's the case, then you're going to have to look at this team differently than if they're 20th or 22nd or 24th or 18th. Like that to me, that to me is the whole fundamental question is can they get somewhere in the realm of what Denver was last year? Whereas middle of the pack, maybe slightly above middle of the pack. Here's the low hanging fruit. Here's the low hanging fruit for them. And I used to joke that Bud was coach low hanging fruit because he just plucked every piece of low hanging fruit. And I was like, Bud, that's a compliment. Like you got to do that. That's right. This should not be the worst transition defense team in the league. I know that they have a slow center in Lopez, that they're big lineups with Portis, who's fine. Portis is trending up. Portis got off to a bad start. He's now getting back to Portis. Portis and Lopez, that's pretty slow. I know they're small on the perimeter, so if, if the, guard is, the guard is the first guy back, it's not offering tons of resistance. They're 30th in, in the most transition defensive chances allowed. They are just getting shredded, if you look at the numbers, off live rebounds. It's not steals. It's not turnovers. It's just they miss... And their floor balance sucks. Their effort sucks. Their first step sucks. Their speed, other than Giannis, sucks. Yes. They have to. They have to clean that up if they're going to be a serious team. 
and like they should be able to. But to your point, there, there just yeah. isn't a reason this should be this. This team should be this bad at a fundamental thing that is at least like forty percent just sheer effort and will. Yeah, that like you said, if if they if you can improve that significantly, that alone is going to help, right? And that's a very obvious thing where you know there's not often <laughs> where the reductive analysis of try harder really works. That is one example of to your point, trying harder will certainly at least partially solve that problem on its own. Now, you alluded to this before. This must be addressed, and I forgot to address it last Friday on the podcast because I was getting ready to travel. (laughs) Although we did have a mock trial about it on NBA Today where Kendrick Perkins and I took opposite sides of the issue and inexplicably wore fedoras. I was going to say, I saw you had some pretty fancy uh, hats on the show. I was impressed by that. My only question that I still have is, after all of this, after all, after Chad Buchanan apparently got elbowed in the ribs, after Giannis screamed at who was he even yelling at on the court? I can't remember. Tyrese Halliburton, Lloyd Pierce, some, Lloyd Pierce, and Tyrese Halliburton, and then ran into the tunnel like like he was trying to ran, rescue somebody yeah, from a fire. Not, ran is not a strong enough verb. <laughs> Sprinted, like, I would say, like he heard a loved one was trapped in a fire. Um, do we even know who got what ball? Has it been solved yet? Uh, no, I have not. I have not. I mean, other than Giannis declaring he didn't know, I have, I will admit that I did not really do a lot of digging on, uh, which was, which I did thoroughly enjoy the Bucks social media account, uh, tweeting out after last night's game. Uh, I believe it was yesterday's game, uh, giving Giannis the game ball for having the most rebounds in the history of the franchise. Uh, I, I thought that was quite the touch in light of what had happened a few days before. I don't know the answer to the question still. And like you, I don't really care that much. <laughs> I will say I talked to a, a well-placed Pacers source the next day who said they were confident that Giannis had the game ball and ha- and the Bucks had the game, the whatever the game ball is, had it all along. And they had the Long alternate game ball. national nightmare can, can now end. Well, I don't. No, no, no. I, but nobody knows. I don't know that anybody knows. I, I know I don't care. I know I hesitate to say this because Giannis, this, this is coming from a place of he wants to give this to his mother. And he, it's a, it is special to break the franchise record in points in a game, score sure. 64. All of that is special and nice. I have to say, in a league that has given us the DeAndre Jordan alleged kidnapping, the Clippers, Rockets alleged secret tunnel that doesn't actually exist, and then the knock-on-the-door decoy that didn't really happen... And just a million other dumb... Patrick Beverly with a camera. Just a million other dumb things. This one was one where I was like, maybe I'm getting old and cranky. I can't even get into the fun of this. This is so ridiculous. Like, what? Like, I was... How did you... I was like, this is just so beyond ridiculous. Like, are we really doing this? Well, listen. I... uh... I was reminded of a story I wrote last year about this time of the year. I'm just going to read the lead. Following Milwaukee's 110-102 loss to Philadelphia at Wells Fargo Center Friday night, a strange scene unfolded between Buck superstar Giannis Tedekupo, 76ers reserve center Montrez Harrell, and a ladder, culminating with Tedekupo pushing a 12-foot ladder out of his way and having it skid a few feet before falling on its side. Quote, I never tried to disrespect anyone in any way, shape, or form, Tedekupo said more than an hour after the game. I feel like today is just an unfortunate event that took place. So I was reminded of last year's fight with the ladder. Well, hopefully that doesn't end up being the epilogue 
on the Milwaukee Bucks season, an unfortunate event, an event that took place. Um, <laughs> but I pres- if you saw my mock trial with Kendrick Perkins, in which I was declared the winner representing oh, the Indiana Pacers. Big win. Big win. I presented the latter incident as evidence of a pattern of over-the-top reactions to post-game nonsense. And it was all tongue-in-cheek, Buck fans. If you saw the hats, the hats alone made it made it clear that it was all tongue-in-cheek. Well, listen, I think you could say with with – Unequivocally, I I love Giannis. He's a wonderful guy. He's an amazing player. That was clearly an over the top reaction to the whole thing. I mean, all of it was over the top. I, I don't. I mean, I don't think anybody can really argue that. Whatever the merits of should he got the game ball sooner? Did he get the game ball? Whatever else happened, it's impossible to argue that wasn't over the top. Like that, I think I think everyone should be able to agree on that one. All I'm saying is don't sleep. Don't don't forget about the Bucks. They're still here. Tim Bontemps, enjoy. Uh, where where are? Can you say where you are? You're in Florida, right? Yeah, I said. I I think we started going the to see pod Cooper Flag. I'm yeah. Fort Myers. Going to see Cooper Flag uh, tonight, and then I'll be at the G League Showcase in Orlando. Going to see uh, Magic Heat on Wednesday. And excited to see. I think there's a chance a bunch of injured players will be back for that game. So see what. Uh, see what everybody looks like. And then I'll be back here uh, in South Florida for Heat Sixers on Christmas and then uh, Magic Sixers and Knicks Magic next week. Bunch of Florida time. You may, you may see me at Heat Sixers on Christmas, Christmas night. Can yeah. I get out of Christmas dinner to go to a Heat Sixers game? Tim Bontemps, I think I can. Well, there you go. I think I can. That'll be, my Christmas, you, buddy. that'll be my Christmas present. Getting to see Zach Lowe on Christmas Day. Big win for me. All right, let's change conferences and go out west. Michael Schwartz, guru of ESPN research, lifelong Suns fan, had to sweat out a home win against the Washington Wizards last night. Unbelievable. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna open with a question. Is it past time to worry about the Bradley Beal, Devin Booker, Kevin Durant, Phoenix Suns, uh, with Bradley Beal out? a time here with an ankle sprain, ankle injury, whatever it is. They have played 24 minutes together in 26 games. The team is 14 and 12 against the easiest schedule in the NBA. 15 home games, 11 road games, and they are sitting at 10th in the Western Conference. Michael Schwartz, are you worried? Are you anxious? I mean, I'd, I'd be worried if we saw it on the court and it didn't work. But like you said, 24 minutes in 26 games, they've played more team games than there have been minutes on the floor with the Suns' big three, 26 games into the season. Uh, that's just absolutely unbelievable. Um, in that incredibly small sample size, they're plus 15. So that's my, you know, I'm, I'm always the positive, optimistic guy. It has... It hasn't always looked. I mean, it's it's nothing. I mean, we you can't take make any uh, um, sweeping generalizations over that. So, I mean, I'm worried that it just feels like that Nets team. You know, they played 16 games together with Harden and uh, Kyrie and Kevin Durant, and it was always something or another. And that's kind of been the way this season has started, whether obviously Beal's back injury has been the biggest thing. Uh, There's been ankle injuries for Booker and KD, and it feels like they just, I mean, obviously they can't get the three on the court. So I'm worried that that's happened, but I feel like 
their grade, if, if we're grading them, it's still an incomplete. We need to see it on the court before you can really say anything. You preemptively brought up Nets 2.0. Yeah. And I don't want to go down the road of Nets 2.0. Um, but that was the obvious thing once the Nets and the Suns, you know, made the Durant mega trade. But which I will just ask you now, Michael Schwartz, honest reaction, Phoenix Suns fan. I just want your fan reaction. I'm not asking you this as a hardcore analyst. We're not going to dive deep into it. Yeah. Would you undo the trade today if you could? I still wouldn't, Zach. You you ask me this every time. I mean, man, it's Kevin Durant. It's a top ten to fifteen player of all time. So I'm I mean, just never gonna get. I just never. Never. I mean, if if this year goes up in smoke, if if we're talking uh, next off season and the Suns lost in round two or round one or something like that, and it never really worked. I mean, we we all know what the future looks like, right? Like, there's there's no assets. There's a couple of second round draft picks. There's some first round picks that have like 10 million pick swaps on them. That's all they have. They don't have money. They don't have draft picks. Um, it's an older roster. They're going to be relying on veteran minimums for the next several years. Uh, the future uh, outside of the big three is bleak, but man, Kevin Durant and Devin Booker, like that's what I still hold my hat on. So I'm, I'm happy for Mikel and Cam. Obviously they played really well on Wednesday and the one game against the big three and beating the Suns and Phoenix. But, man, you get Kevin Durant, I feel like you have to do that every time. I feel like you're going to be saying that. You're going to be pacing around your yard <laughs> in, like, 18 months. Like, hey, it's Kevin Durant. You got to yeah. do it every time for Kevin Durant. You just got to do it every time, every single time. I'm not saying they shouldn't have done it. I, I probably would have done it in the end, although if you go back and listen to my reactions to it at the time, I was – Mm-hmm. a little more trepidatious than I think the head over heels like, oh, you got to go get Kevin Durant. I'm like, yeah, Kevin Durant's injured a lot. And he's honestly been that he's ironically been the healthiest of yeah, the Suns about that? guys this year. And Chris Paul is injured all the time in the playoffs. Now he's become Bradley Beal. And I'm a believer in the idea of this team. They were in my four team inner circle of championship contenders before the season, along with the Nuggets, the Celtics and the Bucks. Obviously the league has taken a lot of twists and turns as it does. Since then, one of those twists and turns is that it's just like we haven't seen the team. We haven't yeah. seen the team. So you can just sort of wash away the first 26 games of the season. They are um, plus eight per 100 possessions, plus 66 points total in 315 minutes with Booker and Durant on the floor. Weirdly, like their stats are so underwhelming. They're 12th in offense, 18th mm-hmm. in defense, 16th in point differential, like a point a game. Then you look at it's like they're winning the Durant solo minutes by a decent margin. They're blowing the doors off people in the Booker solo minutes. They're winning the minutes um, with the two of them on the floor. You mentioned the plus whatever in 24 minutes with the three of them on the floor. They're just gotten completely destroyed in the minutes when all three of them are off the floor, which is what happens when only one of them is healthy and that guy has to rest in games. Those minutes are skewing the overall numbers to like a large degree, even though there's not that many of those minutes. They've been that bad. Um, But and even like I was kind of skeptical on the Aiton for Nurkic swap, I think. To me, that's kind of been a wash. Like, it's been fine. Like, how do you feel about Aiton versus Nurkic? 
Yeah. And I mean, it's not just that it's to me, Grayson Allen was such a key piece to this trade. I mean, it's fair. It's crazy that we're sitting here on December 18th and thinking, at least to me, man, if the Suns didn't have Grayson Allen this year, they'd really be in trouble. But just with the fact that Beal's been out pretty much the whole year, Booker's been out for large stretches. Um, at least last time I checked, he was shooting near 50% on three pointers. Um, the fact that you had both of them plus Nasir Little, who right now is a rotation player, who knows how things will shake out. Not sure if he will be come playoff time, but like they almost needed that extra depth. I didn't really think so at the time of the trade. I thought they did enough in free agency with your Eric Gordons of the world, but like the depth, not just Nurkic versus Aiton. Um, when you talk about Allen and even Little, <laughs> they kind of needed to make that trade crazy enough, even though I wasn't too hot on it to begin with. I I still believe in the concept of the team. Yeah. Like I think with all three of those dudes on the floor, they're going to be incredible on offense. You know, I was immediate in the, I'm not worried about their overlapping skill sets. The fact that they all take a ton of mid range jumpers, the one ball problem. I think they're all quick decision makers, yeah. willing catch and shoot players. And particularly in Beal's case, all three of them are actually willing off ball movers and Beal goes to the rim with like a force when he catches the ball on the move I think the force with the G attacks the rim kind of surprises people defensively we knew that they were going to be kind of average to you know if they really dialed in they could be like 11th 12th yeah I think a few things have happened number one we just haven't seen the team and you do reach a point in the season where it's like you kind of have to see the team and we're not there yet, but we're 26 games in. And like, at some point you got to see the team. Number two, um, like we don't even know who their fifth starter is. Assuming Grayson Allen is their fourth starter when they're healthy. Like, and, and just no one has really, other than Eric Gordon, who I think ideally they would like to bring off the bench. Definitely. Debates Diops and Wananabis and Akogis, he's injured too. None of those guys have like seized a stable rotation role to the point that when they play Chemezi Metu at the four, I'm kind of like, I kind of like how this looks. Yeah. And yeah. I think the reason I kind of like how it looks is their they're, they're lineups with three guards, Durant and Nurkic, there's just so little like power to them. Like, mm -hmm. I don't even want to say size because Durant is a seven-footer with a long wingspan, but he's skinny, and he doesn't play with, like, the clinching tomahawk dunk last night, notwithstanding. He doesn't play with a lot of power. And they just don't feel like they impose any kind of force or physicality on the other team. And I just I, – I am still curious, though, on, on how the team looks. I still believe in the, in the concept of it. Um but they're a little bit more murky around the edges than maybe I expected them to be. Yeah, and I think another one of the worst parts about the fact that we haven't seen this team together is they need to use the regular season to figure out who fits. Metu actually started the one game that they played on Wednesday, crazy enough. Um, and I mean, I think that Vogel has done a decent job of going through uh, that whole bench. And I mean, there've been times where Watanabe has been a key rotation player. There's been games he hasn't played. Metu didn't play a good chunk of the season. Now lately he's getting more opportunities. Um, Jordan Goodwin is another player who's somewhat impressed off the bench, but like the rest of that crew, I wouldn't say really any of those guys we've said are a definite 
player in their playoff rotation. I'd say Eric Gordon is the only guy off the bench on top of the assuming Allen's the fifth starter um, that, you know, 100 percent for sure will be there and probably Eubanks just because you need the backup big. So I think like that's almost been what I'm most concerned about. This team hasn't gotten those reps that they need. We don't know who fits well together. We don't really know that. It's kind of felt like the whole season has been patching over like, okay, who who can fit in this? Durant, we only have sons only have Durant tonight. So who can fit around that and um, haven't been able to really figure out what they need? I guess my I guess my no force comment, no oomph, yeah. power, whatever would apply more on defense than on yeah. offense. Because on offense, a change for the Suns after the Monty Williams era, second in free throws, second in free throw rate, that's a lot Durant. Sixth in offensive rebounding, and they've clearly given their perimeter guys a green light to crash the offensive glass. They're all pretty good at it. I mean, Okogie's like the best in the league among guards, but they're yeah. all pretty good at it. Those are force plays and places that the Suns when they were really just completely dependent on mid-range jumpers. Like in the Chris Paul Booker era, they just they literally got almost all their offense out of mid-range jumpers. They didn't get free throws, they didn't get second chance points. Now they do. And that sort of eases the question of like the 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 only question about their offense to me was are they gonna get up enough threes? Because no matter how good your mid-range shooters are, and these are three of the best. It's hard to win when you just totally subsist on long twos. They still subsist to a large portion uh, on long twos. They're 22nd in threes as a portion of shot attempts, 19th in shots at the rim. But that's fine given their given their ability. Like that balance is not so out of whack um, if they're getting free throws and getting offensive rebounds. So that I think is a is a reason for optimism. I mean, you mentioned Goodwin, who's tough and nasty and talks a lot of trash and can move the ball. He's not a point guard. I think that's been established. He's not like the missing yeah. point guard on the team. Maybe my favorite thing about him is that he's a willing screen setter. And I would like to see when they get fully healthy. And this was one of the reasons I liked the Beal acquisition for them because he became a willing screen setter in Washington and he's going to be defended a lot of times by the opposing point guard. So I'd like them to lean into like, Durant Beal pick and roll, Booker Beal pick and roll. We just haven't really seen a ton of two man game in that way because Beal hasn't been healthy or the other guys haven't been healthy. Like Booker Durant, yeah. you'll see it now and then, but they're often defended by like size guys. So it's a switch. And they, even if they're not, like there are portions of that Washington game where they could have easily roped Jordan Poole into a two man game with one of their two stars. And they just didn't do it, didn't attack him. Um, I'm just I would I just want to see how they look offensively because I think they got a lot of tools, but it's it's starting to get a little like I don't know, man. They're tenth. Like you don't want to be in the. I'll tell you this. How about this? You don't want to be in the play-in tournament. Oh, absolutely. No, you don't want to have anything to do with it. Um, the optimism is they're only three games out of second. I know they've got what nine teams to climb to get there, but um, it's early. We're twenty twenty six games into the season. Um, I think just. Has, as it's been all year, I think you need maybe 30 games of them together. And I'd feel somewhat comfortable 30 games with the big three to ve develop that chemistry, maybe more importantly, figure out which role players work in which areas. And and then you can go. But Zach, the, the other issue, the fourth quarter, it has been a complete disaster, except for yesterday. Yesterday, yesterday they read. <laughs> so I haven't read much into that because 
again, they just haven't had their team. Everybody wants to impose like, well, this is when they need the point guard in the fourth quarter when things yeah. get tight. I I haven't admittedly seen every one of their fourth quarter meltdowns, so maybe you can educate me. I have not. Booker's passing has been so good that yeah. I have not often like felt the void of like this theoretical Tyus Jonesy floor general guy that they don't have. Is that a problem? Uh, when Booker's on the court, it's absolutely not a problem. The problem, a couple of the meltdowns, they had two meltdowns against the Lakers in games when uh, only Durant was playing. He came out. They just had absolutely no shot creation on the floor. And the first three, four minutes without Durant were an utter disaster. So that sort of things happened. I think they have felt the lack of a point guard in the Durant only games. And, um, but and yeah, by when, the way, that's, but that's still like, well, I guess when Beal's healthy, they'll have either Booker or Beal on the floor at all times to be the right. quote unquote point guard, right? Right. I mean, in Wednesday's game, they got absolutely demolished in the Durant Beal minutes, which again, with such a small sample was like five minutes that I'm not too worried, but it was still one of those kind of a, okay, let's bookmark this. This didn't work in, in this game. So, I mean, like TJ McConnell's the one guy who in theory would be such a good fit, but I, I think it's just, if there's injuries, they badly need that extra point guard. As long as Booker's on the court, you don't. I mean, the guy's averaging eight assists a game. He's He can make every pass. Uh, he's been a top tier point guard in the league. It's just when they don't have Booker and then especially when they have none of them on the court, they don't have any sort of floor general to set things up. What have you thought of their, what's interesting to you about their defense so far? I mentioned their 18th in defense. We all can sort of pencil in a top five offense when they're healthy, top six, whatever it is. What, what as a, as a fan of this team and a, an astute observer of it, what do you watch for when you watch their defense and what has stood out to you is like, they got to address that or that's better than I thought it would be, whatever. I mean, in Wednesday's game in particular, when they had, when they could go kind of with that jumbo lineup, when they did have met to, they were switching a lot. Granted, they're playing the Nets who have a ton of like-sized players anyways. So it's, you know, it's not like there were a lot of massive matchup disadvantages, but I just wonder having Booker Beal about the same size, KD's a guy who can really switch, if that's going to become a, a hallmark of their defense. And then just the one thing I'm concerned about, the rim protection, you, you know what you're getting with Nurkic and uh, quicker, the jitterbug guys are just getting right around him. And you kind of know that that's um, the one thing that I was impressed with last year was KD's weak side defense. I think that's something you're really going to need because the the rim protection is still something that's sort of an issue. That, and that's the thing, like, as as tall as he is and I think he's been good defensively and I think he can dial it up in spurts to great again I don't think he's going to bring it every time they're a bad rebounding team they don't force any turnovers and there are nights when it feels like Nurkic is the only dude getting rebounds and like yeah. he's holding down the interior all by himself and you've gotten the full Nurkic experience. you've gotten like about what you should have expected from Nurkic like 12 yeah. a game 10 rebounds the passing has been there. Like he's getting yeah. four assists a game. His chemistry with Durant on cuts is like already really good. And he's just kind of a so-so rim protector. One of the things watching them, particularly in the last couple of weeks is it feels like, and this could just be me not knowing the specific rules that Frank Vogel has in place for each game and each pick and roll combination that they're facing in each game and each lineup that they're facing in each game. It does feel like they can't, quite find a comfort level with where they want Nurkic on the pick and roll. Like he'll drop back 
which is his sort of natural habitat. Yeah. And then he'll start blitzing and coming up to the level of the screen, which is which is kind of a stretch for him, although he's got he's nimbler than you think. It feels like they can't quite decide how to use him. And he's just been okay defensively, I think. And that's just kind of what he is. Yeah, but that's that's what you expect, right? Like you know you're you know you're getting okay defense. I think the the biggest thing to me is if he can just clean up as many of those defensive boards as possible. Um that cuz that's really where they struggle. The good offensive rebounding team really struggle on the defensive boards. And but he's been yeah, you you hit it. He's been as advertised. He's played every game. That's what's been most impressive with the fact that everyone else in the team is going in and out of the lineup on a consistent basis and he's been really the one constant there um i think once they're all together that passing is gonna really unlock quite a bit um we mentioned the nets a lot sometimes there's just a stat that makes you like sit up in your chair this is a week old at this point but when we got to the point with the clippers that Harden, Kawhi, and Paul George had already played more games together than Harden, Kyrie, and Durant wow. did in Brooklyn. I was like, whoa, that happened fast. Like Harden, Kawhi, and Leonard have played 19 games now oh, with wow. the Clippers after 16 in however long they were together in Brooklyn. Like, that's crazy. That, yeah. We, man, maybe that's my book. Maybe like when I take a couple years off and finally do a book, yeah. And get a book deal. Maybe it's the greatest. Th- this is the title, the greatest theoretical team of all time. That's just a crazy stat. You're not going to be that, Michael Schwartz. The Suns are not going to be that. Bradley Beal is going to come back from an ankle injury. They're going to be healthy, and we're going to see what this goddamn team is. And you know what the record was? Thirteen and three. Thirteen and three. I mean, the Nets were unstoppable when when they were cooking like that. And the, the Suns are already two losses toward that. Although you shouldn't really count the the game you got hurt four minutes in on Friday. But yeah, man, it just every every single time it's just like, you know, it's, none of them have been except for Beal's back. I guess that was somewhat serious. They've all been small injuries, largely, you know, a couple weeks here, a couple games there. It's just the the fact that it's been a, a constant stream uh, of injuries where we really don't know what this team looks like, like. All those numbers, you know, 12th offensively, 8th defensively, I was looking at that too, and I just want to rip it up because it doesn't it matter. It doesn't matter. You know, it's, it's, this isn't the team. The only thing that slightly matters to me is what are their numbers when KD and Book are on together. That matters to me a little bit, but the rest of it, you know, we're, when I'm prepping talent on NBA Today, we're going through the Suns. It's like, this isn't the Suns. This, it's been a different team every night. This, is, this you know? is why I haven't really dove into them yet because it's like, I just, what am I going to say? But yeah. when they were losing to the Wizards last night, I was like, oh my I God. might have to start addressing. I mentioned yeah. we don't know who their fifth starter is. Is it maybe just a Kogi? And I forgot no, I about that because Grayson he's been injured. Allen. Well, Grayson. Think, oh, 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 you mean oh, when, when, when they're all, when they're all healthy, it's going to be Grayson yeah. Allen. Okay. I, so that's the big what I three think, Grayson I mean, Allen and Nurkic is going to be the starting five. Yeah. Um, I mean, we'll we'll see, but I, he he's been really good. I mean, what you really need and what hurt them against the Nets is that there was no Grayson Allen, there was no Eric Gordon. You finally get the three, and you don't have your two shooters to put around them. You know, uh, I think they're they're going to be really huge because you always like to talk about um, pick your poison, and there's not a good choice to make against this team. Your choice might be a wide open Grayson Allen three, shooting forty eight fifty percent from the line and I think being able to put those shooters around them, you're just not going to be able to stop this offense just 
be top 20 defensively and and you're going to be right there but man december 18th and we're still talking about the theoretical suns we're really still talking about the stuff we did when he when we did this in the off season do you do you think durant at center has any kind of sustainable shelf life to it like can they do that for like chunks of every other game every game can that be a part of their rotation or is it just too small and too taxing no i think i think you have to see it i think you have to see it in the regular season just because i mean especially if you, you're not going to do it against Jokic and Embiid, obviously but against backup centers i mean just to juice your offense put five elite shooters on the court like i want to see what that looks like just be adequate on the boards. I mean, maybe it's even a, a Bates Diop type at the four, or maybe you put in Metu at the four so that there's... I, I, I've liked Metu. Metu has never played with this kind of energy, and like he's yeah. making shots. Like I, yeah. he's, he's dunking on people. Kind of like Metu. And if he's making threes too, it's like, oh, wow. You got another shooter, and with, with the size on top of it for a team that isn't terribly big... To begin with, yeah, he could be a rotation piece, but it's it's one of those things. You go down the roster, and everyone could be a rotation piece. I don't know who will be a rotation piece. Yeah, you know, I had, again, all these guys have been in and out, Little, Watanabe, and defenses have made it clear, like, we're just not guarding those guys. We have to guard yeah. Grayson Allen, and we have to guard Eric Gordon. Everyone yeah. else here being unguarded. Like, a Kogi, yeah. unguarded. We know that. Yeah. I just hope we get to see it soon because, you know, they're like a four-game losing streak away from being like, uh-oh, uh, uh, now now the play-in is like maybe our destiny, and we don't really mm-hmm. want to mess with that. No, I don't care how good you are. You don't want to mess with the play-in. Nobody wants yeah. to mess with the play-in. And the West is so good. It's a good. You're going to play good teams in the play-in. It's not like it's going to be some cakewalk right in the playoffs. You're going to have to earn your way in, whoever, whoever that is. Right now, today, the play-in would be seven New Orleans against ten Phoenix, eight Lakers against nine Rockets. That's no, the play-in eight, nine, tournament, right? Nine-ten, remember. Oh, duh. My God, I forgot about that. 7, 8, 9, 10. So you'd be playing the Rockets in the first round of the play. And the Warriors would be out of the play in despite yeah. winning two straight games uh, right now without without Draymond and looking okay. You know, Blazers and Nets, not the greatest couple of wins in a row, but they picked up a couple of wins. Michael Schwartz, any parting thoughts on the on your beloved Phoenix Suns who were in the finals not long ago? Yeah. I mean, I'm still optimistic, Zach. I think Booker, Beal, Durant are going to be unguardable. You put two shooters around, and everything I felt in the preseason, I still feel. It's just like I don't believe in being snake bitten. It it kind of feels like that through two months of the season because we haven't gotten to see it. But it's like, man, the the pieces fit. The pieces fit. So I I think I'm still optimistic. I'm just nervous about the fact that we haven't seen it. I wonder how Durant feels. Yeah. Oh my God. You know he goes to the Warriors, and that is what it is. It's whatever. And they're un- they're just unbeatable. Like when they're healthy, they were just never not going to win the title. Yeah, they, they were didn't unfair. win when when they were healthy. Then he leaves for a whole bunch of reasons. And since that moment when he left, it's just been you mentioned snake bit. It's just it it's never ending. It's wherever he goes, yeah. these two places it's been, but I agree with you on the word unguardable. And actually one of the reasons I'm kind of sad about how this has unfolded is I think Beal was ready to remind people like you guys all forgot how good I am. Cause my team is dysfunctional in Washington and I just didn't have talent around me. And now, you know, I think he would have played more games health wise if they had had something to play for the last two or three years. He's a really, really good player. And fits really well with this team and this set of players. I think he was like primed to 
remind people like, oh yeah, I'm I'm an all-star. I'm a guy who's made all NBA before. And we just haven't have been able to see it. Hopefully soon. Any other parting thoughts? So still optimistic, want to see the team. Chimezi Medu should play 42 minutes a game. <laughs> Anything else? No, just um uh... Maybe make a move for a point guard. I think that's the one thing. Just when things get dicey, but overall, like Teo Maladon's uh, waiver claim <laughs> yeah, is not going to do it for you. That's true. They they did acquire a point guard this weekend. Um, no, I so I I just just really want to see what this looks like because it's man. I don't I don't want this to be like All Star break and we're like man, what are the Suns going to look like? All right. Well, Michael, just invaluable to all of us at ESPN. How about this? We'll have you on again once they've played five games together, the big three. That's we're gonna wait five, we were gonna we kept waiting for one. Yeah. We yeah. got one. It was kind of an unremarkable weird game against the Nets, and that's all we got. So we're when we get to five, we'll do it again. Thank Sounds you, good. sir. See you in March. <laughs>